Okay, so to help us tonight, I've got a, a few slides. Um, this map's going to be pretty helpful because Paul's. This is basically uh, we get to this point in Acts, and the Apostle Paul's coming to the end of his third missionary journey, and it's also called his Aegean mission. You've got the Aegean Peninsula around here, so he covers a lot of ground. Um, and it started back in chapter 18 when he left Jerusalem um, and journeyed through the region of Asia Minor. And we saw last week he arrived in Ephesus. And it says in verse 21, so if you've got your Bibles, I'm just going to cover each section, just quickly read through them. Because there's so much to go through, we'll get lost otherwise. Um, and hopefully it won't take too long. So in verse 21, uh, when these things were accomplished, Paul purposed in the spirit, when he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia, to go to Jerusalem, saying, after I've been there, I must also see Rome. So Paul sent into Macedonia two of those who ministered to him, Timothy and Erastus, but he himself stayed in Asia for a time. So when these things were accomplished, gives us the opportunity to recap, because that refers to everything we read last week, um, how God worked these unusual and powerful miracles through Paul. And numbers were being added to the church uh, on such a large scale. What we're going to see here today is actually changing the very fabric of the society in Ephesus. It was such a radical change. We see people forsaking their lives of pagan worship, the occult practices um, were being um, left. And as a result of Paul's ministry here, we read that the name of Jesus was magnified and the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. Uh, but because of this radical change, we also see opposition to the gospel arising in Ephesus um, in quite a dramatic way on quite a large scale. Um, we read last week how there were certain men began to speak evil of the believers um, before the people. So Paul departed from them. And this is something, like I say, will escalate towards the end of the chapter. So as we go through this passage, there's a lot of narrative, but I want to teach on the text and really just allow the Holy Spirit to bring out these applications. And there's a few points I want to specifically mention as well. Starting with this this um, statement that Paul makes, or Luke, the writer of this, uh, this book, in verse 21, it says, Paul purposed in the spirit to go to Jerusalem. And it's unclear whether it refers to his own spirit or the Holy Spirit. Um, but what is clear is that God was in his decisions. And that's something that starts right off uh, this section. And reading through Acts, you can see that uh, Paul's agenda, you know, his itinerary, if you like, was always set by God. You know, it was made clear to Paul by the Holy Spirit, probably through prayer, just by seeking the Lord, uh, that he was to travel through Macedonia to the churches in Achaia uh, before going back to Jerusalem and then on to Rome. And that was really the first point, uh, the, thing, the first thing the Lord spoke to me about. Are our steps directed by God? Do we purpose in the Spirit? Proverbs 19.21 says, There are many plans in a man's heart. Nevertheless, the Lord's counsel, that will stand. You know, do we, do we ask God, as Paul prays for the church, to be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and understanding, um, that we might purpose in the spirit? You know, Paul acknowledged God in his decision process, and God responded by directing his steps. Paul wouldn't actually get to Rome until some four years later, but it shows the clear purpose and vision that he had. And from this point on, visiting the church in Rome because it becomes a, a priority of Paul's. And we see in verse 22, so Paul sent into Macedonia two of those who ministered to him, Timothy and Erastus, but he himself stayed in Asia for a time. So notice here then that as Paul purposes 
in the spirit, his immediate direction was to stay put. And that is a direction. <laughs> Staying put is a direction. If it's directed by the Lord. And that's often sometimes the hardest one to follow as well. But instead Paul sends Timothy, his close friend. We all know Timothy. And he was a travelling companion of Paul's for about eight years. And we know from Paul's letters to the Romans and the Corinthians that there were practical reasons for sending Timothy on ahead. Um, in his first letter to the church at Corinth, Paul wrote, Now I will come to you when I pass through Macedonia, for I am passing through Macedonia. And if Timothy comes, see that he may be with you without fear, for he does the work of the Lord as I also do. And so it's likely these men were sent on ahead. Erastus we don't know too much about, but Timothy definitely sent on ahead um, to make preparation for, the, for the, um, the offering to the saints in Jerusalem. And just as a helpful reference, you probably remember, most of you, I'm pretty sure all of you would have heard it, on the Sunday morning we've been teaching through 2 Corinthians, where chapters 8 and 9 would be making reference to the church in Macedonia, how uh, they were cheerful givers, despite being in great affliction. And these are the churches Paul is getting this collection from. So while Timothy goes on ahead to these Macedonian churches, Paul stays in Ephesus. And we're also told, very helpfully, in his letter, a bit further on to the Corinthians, but I will tarry in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a great and effective door has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. So what were these adversaries? Let's carry on in verse 23. And about that time there arose a great commotion about the way for a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Diana, brought no small profit to the craftsmen. He called them together with the workers of similar occupation and said, Men, you know that we have our prosperity by this trade. Moreover, you see and hear that not only at Ephesus, but throughout almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned many away, uh, turned away many people, saying that they are not gods which are made with hands. So as we said at the start, the effects of the gospel were being, you know, being preached in Ephesus were clear to see. And we read here that there arose a great disturbance about the way. And the, the, the way was one of the first names used for followers of Jesus. So what was this disturbance? Well, Paul was being blamed by Demetrius, this local silversmith, and other idol makers as the reason they were losing their business. So basically... Like I said, this was absolutely radical, what was happening here. Um, I mean, history shows that Ephesus was going through a massive change here. The society was actually changing because of the gospel, the impact the gospel was having. And the worship of Artemis or Diana, whether you're a Greek or Roman, it's the same God. These silversmiths were making idols, household idols people would have in their home. They would worship them in the home. And this was big business in Ephesus. This was the industry in Ephesus. Um, but of course, as people were getting saved, they no longer wanted to buy these idols. And these guys were going out of business. And that's radical, you know. These guys were actually going out of business. They were losing money because of the, the effect the gospel was having in Ephesus. And Paul was being accused by these silversmiths of leading people astray as if it was all his fault, you know. And it's as if he had some persuasive influence over the people there, of some power. Um, so it's worth, you know, in, in, in that point raised by Demetrius, I just thought it was worth taking a quick look at Paul's preaching to understand why they were holding him accountable for this. How could one man have so much power and make such a difference? And in this, we'll ask, how are we prepared to be used by God? Because God was using him in a powerful way. Um, so we can learn something from this. And the second point really is the gospel is the power of God. We know that. 
but we are instruments of God. We are the instruments God uses. And people were hearing the gospel message preached, and hundreds, maybe thousands, were leaving the life of pagan worship and getting saved. But there's, like I said, there's something quite special about how Paul evangelized. And we'll see certain words popping up in chapters 18 and 19. The author Luke uses these Greek verbs, meaning um, to, to, to describe Paul's preaching in Corinth and Ephesus. Words like to reason, argue, persuade. You keep seeing these words. Paul uses this, this method of evangelizing to these people. He's not arguing with them, but he's, he's speaking to them in a certain way. And Demetrius wasn't the first to complain about this. Um, we read uh, in chapter 18, the Jews in Corinth, they were complaining to their Roman leader, Gallio, saying, this fellow persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. Again, you know, Paul was, uh, the words that he was saying, the things that he was saying to the, to the believers, to the Greeks and the Jews, they had some power of persuasion over them. We know Paul wasn't anything special to look at. He, wasn't, he didn't have much of a presence. He, his speech was contemptible. He was a short guy, probably bald, and had all sorts of weird physical things going on. And he just didn't have much of a presence. You know, he wasn't like one of these great orators who would just stand there and you'd listen to him. And, but uh, you know, he knew how to reason. You know, he knew how to argue um, convincingly, um, which was something very popular in Greek culture. And one commentator, one commentator said that Paul was looking to convince in order to convert. And it's not taking away the power of the Holy Spirit, but it's, it's something about Paul that was very powerful in how God used him and how God used his speech to convince in order to convert. Like I said, it's important to point out, and I'm not saying for one moment that persuasive arguments alone are an alternative to the power of the Holy Spirit um, working in a person's heart, because we know it's the gospel. The good news of Jesus Christ, that is the power of God unto salvation. Again, the Holy Spirit will enlighten and quicken a person's heart in a miraculous way, as we can all testify. I'm pretty sure, pretty sure whether it was gradual or, or profound, you know, immediate. You know, God did a radical work in our hearts. God changed our hearts. You know, he did a radical work from the inside. And there's a miraculous work, a supernatural work going on there. But there is a responsibility that we have, that we see here in Paul. A responsibility that through accurate revelation of the truth, through reason of the truth, people from us are presented with the gospel. And the spirit of truth supernaturally brings people to faith in Jesus Christ. Not in spite of the evidence, but because of it. So it's important that as we represent Jesus to others that we have a good understanding and grasp of the truth as revealed in Holy Scripture. So that we can present the gospel first without error. Uh, but also we can persuade people, we can persuade people that our convictions, that our convictions are real. And that we stand uncompromisingly for what God declares in his word. And as we attempt to do this, we ourselves will become evidence of the truth. Paul says to uh, Titus that we adorn the doctrine of God, our saviour, in all things as we do this. So <clears throat> Demetrius, the idol maker, he continues his rant here in verse 27. So not only is this trade of ours in danger of falling into disrepute, but also the temple of the great goddess Diana may be despised and her magnificence destroyed, whom all Asia and the world worship. And we see <laughs> Demetrius actually acknowledges a few important things. Um, you know, Paul's preaching was threatening their livelihood, referring to the money they were losing. 
um, in selling or not selling images of Diana affecting their industry. But Paul is also being accused of discrediting their God, robbing her of divine majesty. I, I love that. It's, you, you, you couldn't give Paul more credit. You know, robbing their God of, of her divine majesty. It, it, it's, it's quite an amazing um, confession <laughs> from Demetrius here. Or suffering the loss of her greatness is how another translation puts it. So who was this Greek goddess, Artemis or Diana? Again, these words are interchangeable depending on whether you're Greek or Roman. Um, but she was depicted as a female hunter, also the, the god of fertility, and worshipped extensively. And the, the temple that was in Ephesus was said to be one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was the most amazing construction <clears throat> around this uh, worship of Artemis. And they believed that her image fell down uh, or was sent down from heaven, um, from Zeus, and fell to earth. And history actually shows that around this time a meteorite did fall and landed smack in the middle of Ephesus. And what they did, they carved this uh, this uh, figure, you know, this, this image out of this meteorite and they worshipped it. You know, that's kind of... It's quite an amazing thing to happen, you know. You, you can kind of see see how that would be quite a, a profound thing. But but yeah, you know, Diana was hand-sculpted out of this meteorite that fell to earth. And um, But, you know, it's important to appreciate here, you know, this was... This was their this this was big industry. This was the livelihood of a lot of people who lived there. Um, and actually, what was happening because of the impact of the gospel? These people were 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 out of work. You know, they were actually they were not able to sell uh, these these hand graven images of Diana because there was there was less people to buy them. The gospel was having such a radical effect. But it, in a sense, there's a spiritual battle going on here as well, because the way they described it, some accounts of this, it's like a, almost like a cosmic battle between the deities. Paul was representing, you know, a monotheist. He had, he believed there was one God. Um, and the Greeks and the Romans were kind of interchanged with different gods, depending on what they were wanted to pray for, you know, Zeus, Diana, all these different things. And it was, um, uh, it was what, what Paul represented. That was a threat to these people. Um, as opposed to Paul himself. But that just, you know, the more I looked at this and their reaction, and also how we think about how the gospel affects the society we live in, the gospel doesn't fit in to secular society. It radically changes it. The gospel was never designed to fit into the fallen culture that we, that we live in. Um, but it changes it radically from, with us from the inside. And, you know, Paul is actually given a lot of credit for leading the people astray, but what we're actually seeing is how the gospel was transforming the lives of the people who were getting saved and also how their salvation impacted the secular culture around them. And that's really, I think, one thing to take away from this. You know, God has saved us for us to have an impact on the secular world around us. Um, Not to fit into it, but to be radically different to it. What Demetrius acknowledges, we see in... um, in this passage, uh, the preaching of the gospel was transforming the whole of Asia. And we read last week, Paul daily reasoned in the school of Tyrannus, uh, where essentially every single person, or you know, pretty much every single town or village, at some point had heard Paul pe- preach in this town, in this school at Tyrannus. And he continued there for two years. So all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord. Um, so what we're seeing here is almost the... Um, 
the legacy of, of that time Paul invested, how fruitful his ministry was there, and the fact that uh, uh, this silversmith or this the guild of silversmiths who were actually leading this revolt are complaining of, of, of this transformation uh, that we know happened through the gospel. But we also read some secular accounts of the historical change at this time in Ephesus. And um, one chap actually said, uh, I mean, he, he accepted that there was the spread of, you know, the, the quick spread of the gospel and the success of the, uh, the early Christian church. Uh, it was, ex- he acknowledged it, but he tried to suggest other ways it could have happened. And um, one source said that Christianity triumphed over paganism chiefly because it improved the lives of its followers in various ways. I'm not sure that's true. But it's interesting how uh, this, 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 there are historical accounts of, of how the gospel transformed the society of Ephesus. Um, but obviously they didn't want to accept that it was, it was the sovereignty of God, you know, in control of the, the, the work that was happening there. Um, but, you know, you know, the truth is the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And men like Paul were used by this all-powerful God to save souls. And so we see the makers of these household idols in Ephesus uh, who themselves had obviously rejected the gospel message, but they were inciting the townspeople against Paul and the way, uh, these early Christians. And it's here in Acts that we begin to see the first signs of serious opposition to the gospel outside of Israel. And really what would become of these Christians? And you guys have probably heard of Caesar Nero. Emperor Nero was, he did some awful things to Christians, literally not, no more than five years from this point. Um, so we see that the, the, the persecution um, on the rise in the Greco-Roman world, which would obviously culminate in Nero's reign, then Domitian and all the other pretty wicked emperors from, from there on in. But yeah, this, this radical change in the, the pagan society of Ephesus just brings out some fundamental truths about the gospel that I wanted to look at. And Jesus, Paul argued <laughs> that unlike false gods that were made with hands, Jesus was God manifest in the flesh. As a perfect man, he lived, was crucified, and rose again, and lives forevermore to eternally save anyone who calls upon his name. And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And we see the early Christians re- referred to here as the way. And that was in, in reference to Jesus being the way, the truth, and the life. And Paul preached that salvation, the way to salvation, was narrow. But it was narrow for a good reason so that the gospel wouldn't be compromised and that people wouldn't, in coming to faith in Christ, wouldn't compromise their view of God. It was very specific and it had to be. The gospel requires that we deny ourselves, put away our false gods and put our faith in Jesus Christ for he alone has paid for our sin through his death and resurrection. You know, we don't follow religion. We follow Jesus because he is the way. Jesus alone satisfied God's judgment on sin and fulfilled God's righteous requirement and it's through faith in Jesus Christ that we come to God and this was the message that Paul preached verse 28 when they heard these things spoken about their God little g they were full of wrath and cried out saying great is Diana of the Ephesians so the whole city was filled with confusion and rushed into the theater with one accord having seized Gaius and Aristarchus Macedonians Paul's, travels, uh, Paul's travel companions, and when Paul wanted to go into the people, the disciples would not allow him. Then some of the officials of Asia, who were his friends, sent to him, pleading that he would not venture into the theatre. You know, so Paul wanted to use this opportunity 
you know, there's so many people gathered here. He just wanted to get in amongst them and preach the gospel to them. <laughs> but the disciples feared for his life. Um, you know, th- this was intense. This was, this was a very dangerous and violent gathering. Um, almost a mob mentality. They didn't even know why they were there, some of them. There was just absolute confusion. Um, a tumult, I would have said this morning as a word. I liked it. And that's it. It was, it was utter confusion and chaos. And the whole of Ephesus were being incited at this point by this, these guilds of silversmiths, these guys who had so much influence over the people in that they, you know, um, made their idols and sort of had this industry of worship of, of Artemis. And, and also we read uh, the support of these officials in Asia, powerful and influential men. You know, it tells us that Paul wasn't a criminal. You know, he was actually backed by some pretty high up officials in Ephesus. <clears throat> Um, so he wasn't regarded as a criminal. Um, they weren't bringing him before any kind of official court. You know, there was no. This wasn't a proceeding. This was Paul and the Christians literally being pulled off the streets and just this mob mentality, just you know, taking over. Uh, there was nothing legal about this at all. And we see these seized Gaius and Aristarchus, who were close friends of Paul, uh, both highly spoken of Paul in his letters. But most didn't even know why they gathered. That's the point. It was just it was utter confusion. And, I find, and that's what I find uh, um, interesting. You know, this misguided mob mentality. You know, I found myself being reminded of when Jesus looked at the multitudes. And he saw them as sheep without a shepherd. You know, misguided, lost, <clears throat> confused, angry, you know, frustrated, you know. Uh, but having no direction. But that contrasts those who had received Jesus Christ as the way, the truth, and the life. They had been given a direction. These people were still <clears throat> confused. Paul knew that. Paul wanted to use this as an opportunity to preach the gospel to these people because he knew through the gospel they, could have, they, 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 would, they would see the way. They would see the light. They would see Jesus. Um, and, we, and Paul wrote to the Corinthians almost at this, this very moment, God is not the author of confusion, but of peace. And there was no peace here. And Paul desperately wanted to speak to these people, but it was too dangerous. In verse 33, uh, we read, And they drew Alexander out of the multitude, the Jews putting him forward. And Alexander motioned with his hand and wanted to make his defense to the people. But when they found out he was a Jew, all with one voice cried out for about two hours, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. So we see the tone of this crowd change slightly. And notice their reaction to Alexander, this Jewish guy. We don't know if he was saved. Uh, we don't know very, we don't know much at all about Alexander. Um, but the fact alone he was Jewish caused the crowd to become more defiant, to grow louder, <clears throat> more aggressive in their worship of their false god. Um, it's an interesting reaction. And of course, Jews were known by, uh, the pagans to be mono, monotheists. So even though he wasn't, you know, worshippers of one god, so he, they rejected any form of pagan religion. Uh, so even if Alexander wasn't Jewish, even if he didn't represent the Christian sect, he still represented a religious ideology uh, that the crowd were united against. And this is a reaction that we still see towards Jewish people today, often without any cause. But finally we see the voice of reason, a city clerk. We don't know his name, but he was basically the mayor in Ephesus. Uh, and he has the words to appease this mob. But notice how he does this. So we read in verse 35, and when the city clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, what man is there who does not know that the city of, of the Ephesians is, 
is temple guardian of the great goddess Diana and of the image which fell down from Zeus. Therefore, since these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rashly. So the worship of Diana was so well known and universally accepted that according to the clerk, there was no danger of it being destroyed by, by Paul and his disciples. So the crowds were calmed by this clerk's defiant words. In verse 37, For you have brought these men here, who are neither robbers of temples nor blasphemers of your goddess. Therefore, if Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a case against anyone, the courts are open. There are pro-councils. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you have any other inquiry to make, it shall be determined in the lawful assembly, for we are in danger of being called in question for today's uproar. There being no reason which we may give to account for this disorderly gathering. And when he had said these things, he dismissed them. Dismissed them. So from verse 37 to 41, the city clerk continues to reason to the crowds, actually mounting a form of legal defense for Paul, which is, which is interesting, because it shows Paul wasn't regarded as a criminal. Uh, these things weren't happening as a result of, of any laws being broken. You know, this guy's motive was really to avert a riot. He saw some pretty serious um, things going on here, and he feared what would become of this uprising. It's an important point. Paul wasn't guilty of any crime. And despite the accusations, Paul was only guilty of preaching the gospel and speaking the truth about a false religion. Paul wasn't a robber of temples. But tonight we sung, give us clean hands, cast down our idols. You know, that's all Paul wanted to do. He wanted people's idols to be removed in their hearts. He knew only the gospel could do that. You know, he didn't blaspheme or slander other pagan gods, but instead he denied their power. And he exalted the one true living God. And he preached the words of Jesus as truth. So before we move on from this scene in Ephesus, it's important to say that if we faithfully represent Jesus being grounded in the truth, there may be opposition. There will, sorry, be opposition. The Bible tells us if we desire to live godly in Christ Jesus, there will be persecution. We will be persecuted. We need wisdom to handle that in a loving way. But always remember that God has the power and the will to save anyone. And again, we song mighty to save tonight i think the song selection tonight was uh, certainly inspired you know because it's these are the points that we want to take away from this you know paul wasn't scared to walk into that theater he didn't fear for his own life at risk to his own life he wanted the gospel to be preached he knew the gospel was the only thing that could set these people free from this confusion from this lack of peace um, and god has the power and the will to save anyone acts 20 so, after the uproar had ceased, Paul called his disciples to himself, embraced them, and departed to go to Macedonia. And now when he had gone over that region and encouraged them with many words, he came to Greece and stayed three months. So we see, having left Ephesus, he travels north, <coughs> and there's Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, churches we all know, and he comes down to Achaia, and most famously Corinth, And he stays in this part of Greece for three months. But it's likely, you know, Paul was in hiding up until this point. And leaving the the elders in Ephesus, the church in Ephesus, was probably quite, it was probably quite an emotional meeting. But, you know, Paul wanted to make sure the men who were there could shepherd the church. They were good shepherds. And Paul could trust that they could shepherd the flock in Ephesus. He knew there was serious opposition. He needed people there he could trust. So after two fruitful years, Paul leaves 
Ephesus, and he meets up with Timothy and the other believers in northern Greece, and traveling further down onto Achaia and, of course, Corinth. And in verse 2, um, as he journeyed, he encouraged with many words. And that's, again, a small detail. We'll see a few of these small details by Luke, the author. And it's clear that Paul devoted a lot of his time to encouraging and strengthening the churches that he'd planted as an apostle of Jesus. And he did it with many words, many words of exhortation. And it's important to be encouraged and to encourage um, through the word. And that's how Paul did this. He did this through teaching. He did this through gospel truth. And often that's the way God wants to encourage us. Especially when there's opposition. Especially when there's hardship. We need to strengthen each other through kind words of encouragement. We all need this encouragement, right? We all need this encouragement. This is why we meet regularly as a church uh, to encourage each other. We have Bible teachings on Sunday because we want God to speak to us. We have small groups during the week because the Christian life can be hard (laughs) and we all need to support each other and we all need that encouragement. And Paul felt this was a necessary part of his ministry. He understood much of the work of the Holy Spirit was to comfort the brethren. So after this time of encouragement, Paul arrives in Greece and we know Paulus was here in Greece. And he stays here for three months, most likely over the winter of AD 57 to 58, um, if anyone wants a timeline. But yeah, the weather was probably too, 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 too bad to, to travel. So he stayed there for three months. And we know by this time Paul had written a number of letters to the Corinthians as well, so he'd probably have quite a lot to discuss with the elders there. Um, but he was also there to finalise the collection for the church back in Jerusalem as well. Timothy had gone on ahead to organise the contribution. So Paul was there to finalise the collection. One important uh, thing that does happen here is he writes his letter to the Romans. So the book of Romans was written at this time. And in chapter 15, as a cross-reference, verse 19, Paul writes, In mighty signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and round about to Acrylium, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ, but now no longer having a place in these parts, and having a great desire these many years to come to you, but now I am going to Jerusalem to minister to the saints, for it pleased those from Macedonia and Achaia to make a certain contribution for the poor among the saints who are in Jerusalem. So notice we've reached this pivotal point in Paul's ministry here where God had used Paul to preach throughout this whole region of um, uh, well, the, the whole Aegean region and uh, northern Greece and Macedonia and Asia Minor as well. And this would be the last time any of these churches would, churches would see Paul. So we see extended periods of encouragement because this is the last time he's going to see them. He'd see the church of Corinth again, but he's, some of these churches he's not going to see again. So Paul, with the contribution from these churches, he begins his journey back to Jerusalem. And you can see from the arrow his journey back. And when the Jews plotted against him, verse 3, as he was about to sail to Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. And Sopater of Berea accompanied him to Asia, also Aristarchus and Secundus of the Thessalonians, and Gaius of Derby and Timothy, and Trophimus of Asia. These men going ahead waited for us at Troas, but we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days joined them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. So we see that Paul wanted to sail directly to Syria on his way back to Jerusalem, but he became aware of a plot by the Jews, and it's likely that 
the Jews planned to murder Paul because he'd be an easy target. He'd be in a small vessel traveling back. So he changed his plans and decided instead to travel essentially back the way he came through the mainland of northern Greece. So we see a number of brothers joining Paul at this time as well. Seven men who were likely elders representing um, their own churches and they were chosen to accompany Paul on his journey back to Jerusalem. And of course we know Timothy, <clears throat> but Aristarchus and Secundus, who are mentioned together. And just as an interesting point, this name Aristarchus is, is connected with aristocracy. It's likely he had pretty wealthy um, roots. And Secundus means second, which was a very common name for a slave. Um, in, in, in the home of a slave, you'd have primus and secundus. Um, the first slave and the second slave. So it's a, for me, it was just a nice reminder that the early church, there was no distinction. <laughs> you had one guy who was represented the aristocracy, and you had one guy who was a slave. And these guys were elders, and they represented their churches. And it's just, I, th- I think that's quite interesting. Again, a small detail Luke puts here, just to, there's no individual merit, you know. It's just grace. Um, we take a look at verse 5. The whole of this missionary journey, the, the writer Luke, he's spoken to, uh, about Paul in a, in a narrative. Uh, and we see here, uh, Luke says, These men going ahead waited for us at Troas, but we sailed. So Luke suddenly includes himself. He, he, he's, no, he's no longer speaking about Paul um, in a narrative. He, he, he includes himself as, as a companion, a traveling companion of Paul's. And he does this three times in Acts. And it's an important detail because we know everything from now on and throughout this next section is an eyewitness account of Luke. So just something to bear in mind. So it's, it's likely Luke and Paul spent the, the feast of Passover and unleavened bread, which, which would continue into unleavened bread, uh, for seven days with the church there in Philippi. And then they crossed the Aegean Sea to Troas, probably against strong winds because it took five days. Um, going there on the other, a few chapters back, it only took two days. So he, it's probably a pretty difficult journey. And they meet up with the others who went on ahead of them. And they all stay here, they, they stay there in uh, Troas for seven days. And this takes us into the the last section, really. Um, verse 7, Now on the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul, ready to depart the next day, spoke to them and continued his message until midnight. Wow. You thought John preached a long sermon. <clears throat> so we, in this story, in Luke's account, we skip ahead to the last day of their stay in Troas, uh, which happened to be the first day of the week. And again, it's one of those small details that Luke adds and this is actually the first evidence of the church getting together on a Sunday to have a, a time of fellowship and, and worship and teaching. The first day of the week in the Jewish calendar being starting from uh, Saturday sunset to Sunday sunset. What we see here is the church gathering together you know, to worship on a Sunday just like we did today. It's not the Sabbath. It's important to, to, to note. Uh, and that was obje- the, the Sabbath was only to be observed under the Mosaic law. Uh, there's no reference to the New Testament. Jesus never repeats the command, especially for Gentiles, to uh, observe the Sabbath. But they did gather together on the, the first day of the week. They probably had been working on that day. They gathered together in the evening. Um, and it was a celebration. You know, The first day of the week in the Jewish calendar was the, was the day Jesus rose from the dead. And it was, it, was, it was to celebrate the resurrection. That's how it first started. You know, um, And they broke bread as a communion service. They worshipped together. They studied together. And they probably had a fellowship meal as well. You know, Pretty much like our bring and share. You know? uh, so Paul was giving this message here to the church in Troas. And we're probably not talking about a non-stop sermon from sunset to sunrise. That would be... Uh, 
I think, pretty intense. Um, Luke actually uses words in the Greek that imply discussion, so it's probably an informal time, maybe even a QA. and <laughs> a But an informal time in the Word, you know, open discussion. Um, it's possible he had letters from the churches in uh, the places he just visited, letters of greeting from the elders there, passing on messages, that kind of thing. And we see Paul, in verse 7, ready to depart the next day, spoke to them and continued his message until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where they gathered together. And in a window sat a certain young man named Eutychus, who was sinking into a deep sleep. He was overcome by sleep. And as Paul continued speaking, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down, fell on him, and embracing him said, Do not trouble yourselves, for his life is in him. Now when he had come up, had broken bread and eaten and talked a long while, even till daybreak he departed. And they brought the young man in alive, and they were not a little comforted. So remember, Luke is providing an eyewitness view of this scene. Luke the physician. You can picture how the <clears throat> church gathered in this house, in this space, big house, very big house in um, Troas. They occupied all the available floors of this house, um, probably in a, an arena affair so they could actually see and hear Paul quite well to teach. And it was a long night. And this poor Eutychus, he couldn't take any more, bless him. He was spent, you know, the word used here to refer to Eutychus is, is pious and it means lad um, or boy. And he probably wasn't any older than but it could be anything from age 7 to 14. This guy, he, he was a young boy, and it makes the story even more tragic when you read it. So he found a nice comfortable perch sitting in the window, and the hour was late, and the fumes from the burning oil lamps, this poor lad dozed off, and he tragically fell out of the open window. We assume backwards, without obviously any glazing in the window, into the street below, maybe 30 feet, uh, sorry, up, up to 50 feet three stories, and he was killed. And I'll tell you the reason why I think he was killed outright in a minute. You know, I think when we say these things in Scripture, you know, these, these scenes, I always try and imagine what would be my first reaction. You know, if we were having a church service and someone, there was something like that happened, you know, some, something as tragic as that. What would be my first reaction, you know? You'd probably call 999, and that would be good. That's a good thing. Um, I think most of us would be scared to touch someone who'd just taken a fall like that. Uh, maybe our church is full of doctors and medical <coughs> people, so that's, that's, that's definitely a good thing. Um, but yeah, I certainly would be, you know, someone who'd experienced such a trauma. Uh, but let's look at Paul's reaction. In the language uh, Luke uses, Paul literally fell on him and embraced him. And it means just that. Paul literally lay on him and put his arms around him and revived him. Um, it was very physical, very hands-on, but a very miraculous act of healing. And you may remember we see two similar acts of healing in the Old Testament. With the prophets Elijah and Elisha, with boys of a very, we can imagine, a similar age. 1 Kings 17.21, And he stretched himself upon the child three times, and cried unto the Lord, and said, O Lord my God, I pray thee, let this child's soul come unto him again. And we see uh, in Second Kings, Then he returned and walked in the house to and fro, went up and stretched himself upon him, and the child sneezed seven times, and the child opens his eyes. So it's, again, two very strange. You read those accounts and you think, man, that's strange. 
But it's amazing, you know. And we see Paul doing a, a very similar act of healing, no doubt under the direction of the Holy Spirit, you know, but he embraces this lifeless body of this boy in a very similar way and he prays for life to return to his body. And we know that this was not just a case of Paul resuscitating Eutychus after a bad fall. I mean, some modern translations actually say his life is still in him, giving the impression that he'd taken a fall, but he was still alive. And Paul actually doesn't perform a miracle. He just revives him. But, you know, Luke was, Luke was a physician. This is an eyewitness account. That's what we have to remember. So when the author gives an eyewitness account that the boy was taken up dead, he says, taken up dead and then brought in alive, it means after he fell there was no signs of life in this boy. Eutychus was raised from the dead. There's no doubt about it. It was a miracle. And Luke was recording a miracle in this account here in Acts. And it was a miracle at the hand of Paul that left people with no doubt at the power of God. And we remember we had, we, last week we read at the start of Acts, God was performing unusually powerful miracles through Paul. And this is another example of that. And of course we read those who knew Eutychus, uh, maybe even family members were greatly comforted by seeing Eutychus revived. So why include this account at the end of Paul's journey, apart from, again, Luke just recording a miracle? I think what spoke to me, you know, we're not to see Paul's ministry as just a teaching ministry or uh, an apostle who planted churches. He believed in the power of God. He believed in the power of God to transform lives, even to the point of raising the dead. Paul didn't hesitate to act on the convictions of his faith. And God brought these believers here in Troas. Remember, this is probably the last time they were going to see him. And they brought the, these believers to us and to us together to be encouraged with the word of God, no doubt, but also to witness a powerful miracle. A young brother they knew well would fall from a great height, but he would walk away unhurt. What a testimony. And surely they could take this as testimony that God was working powerfully in their midst, confirming the ministry of these apostles, that the word of God they preached was living and active to save, to restore, and to give new life. It's a wonderful account. So from verse 13 to verse 15, Luke continues to describe their journey from Tuas as he set sail to travel to Miletus. That was located about 20 miles um, or 30, 35 miles south of, of Ephesus. Uh, so he's travelled full circle around this peninsula and they're now making their way back to Jerusalem. And we see in verse 13, Then we went ahead to the ship and sailed to Assos, there intending to take Paul on board. For so he had given orders, intending himself to go on foot. And when he met us as Assos, we took him on board and came to Mytilene. And we sailed from there, and the next day came opposite Chios. The following day we arrived at Samos and stayed at Troglium. The next day we came to Miletus, for Paul had decided to set sail past Ephesus so that he would not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hurrying to be back at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. So it's just as a final point, really, here. It's another one of those little details that we see Luke includes. Um, he instructs the others to sail around the coast to Assos, and he makes his way on foot across land, which is a journey of about 20 miles. So he's He's chosen to actually uh, to walk there on foot and meet these guys. 
the rest of the disciples who are sailing. And why does Paul do that? You know, I think fellowship with those others is, is, is very important, you know. The secrets of the success and the impact of Paul's ministry, everything we've seen here tonight, was his personal relationship with God. Paul understood his union with Christ because he spent time with Christ. <laughs> he spent a lot of time with Jesus. I think we can often prioritize our, our fellowship as believers over our fellowship with God. And I think this is a good example of Paul <clears throat> putting God first, intentionally drawing uh, to one side, withdrawing himself from the others, I'd like to assume to be alone with God, to seek direction. You know, we, we start off tonight talking about how Paul purposed in the spirit, how he always involved God in his decisions. It's something we need to do. And <clears throat> if we don't withdraw ourselves sometimes to seek God, how can God direct your steps? You know, if we don't acknowledge God through drawing near to him, how is he going to direct our steps? But he promises if we do, he will. And then we can purpose in the spirit and the spirit leads us. So if we want to be used by God in this powerful way to reach others, we must want God to direct our steps. Also, if we want God to be used, if we want to be used by God in this powerful way, then we must believe in the radical power of God's word as well to transform lives and to act on the conviction of our faith, to be prepared to be used by him. God has chosen us to be instruments of righteousness, to be instruments to bring the gospel to this world. And we need to be diligent. We see Paul was diligent in how he prepared himself, how he spoke, how he used the gospel. He used the gospel to convince others his own life was to be a, a walking epistle of the gospel. And if we want the life of Christ to be manifest through us, as it was with Paul, then our relationship with Jesus must be a priority. And again, we see Paul prioritizing his mission. He knew if he went to Ephesus, there's no way he could have a short stay in Ephesus. There's no way. He'd be too many people to see. He'd, be, he'd take up too much time. He had his, his focus on spending um, the day of Pentecost with the church in Jerusalem. And nothing was going to distract him or hinder him from, from getting there. So he was very, um, you know, he prioritized his mission. Um, and he sailed past Ephesus. And we know, we'll read next week, uh, Paul chose to go to uh, Miletus and, and he brings the Ephesian elders uh, to him uh, to spend time with them there to encourage them, to exhort them for the last time. But that's where we'll pick it up next week.